Hello and welcome to Read All About It, our book program where we talk about two recently released uh, novels and then talk about a classic that's well worth reading again, or so we think, and we hope you'll agree with us. And today it's my turn to start, and the book I've bought is, uh, is a current bestseller. It's The Miniaturist by Jesse Burton. And uh, it's, uh, it's one of those um, uh, first novels that, that, that makes it big. So it leaves me in, and she's very jealous, I think. Of course. Some of us struggle for years. But it's deservedly a, a, a big hit. It's, uh, it's the story of a, um, a young woman uh, aged 18 who marries uh, a rich man. And um, it's very much like the classics, the, the Jane Eyre and the, um, the, the, the Charlotte Bronte-type novels, except it's written uh, today by a, a modern woman. Uh, the, the book is set in 1686, and it starts off with this 18-year-old girl having come up from the countryside, no money, uh, who's been uh, uh, married off to uh, to a rich fellow much older than than uh, herself, and of course she's very nervous. She doesn't know what she's going to meet. Um, the whole thing is a is a matter of excitement and fear, and then nothing happens as she expects. Um, oh. You know, the uh, the reader of course expects sort of you know this horrible uh, nightmarish man who bullies her and and uh, molests her and <laughs> the sort of thing you expect usually yes we're, well we're in the middle of the 17th century how much history are we sort of set up with here yeah so uh, the history is uh, is painted on very thickly uh, the the writer obviously did a, a lot of research and um, so we've got lots of local color and historical detail about her clothes and the food and the society there and um, the, the the rich man turns out. Uh, I, I'm, this is not a spoiler because it happens right at the beginning. But the rich man turns out not to want to molest her or or or, or get his wicked way in any way. He he kind of ignores her. How very odd. What's it, wrong with him? Yeah, that's right. What's <laughs> wrong with him? Or what's wrong with her? Yes. And uh, so that's the 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 in to the book. And um, so she's kind of baffled. Why why is the new husband not interested in her? So she instead puts her interest into um, creating something in the house. He's given her a present, which is a giant doll's house. So she decides she's going to fill it full of things. So she finds there's a local um, model maker called a miniaturist in uh, in the city. This is set in Amsterdam in the 17th century. And so she starts filling up this doll's house with, uh, with items. And, of course... Um, that's that's just the beginning of a long and very complex and and delightfully unpredictable story. So uh, yeah, you, you can see. I mean, if you think how many people like Jane Austen, or how many people like the Bronte sisters, you know, they've got fans centuries they've spent developing their market. So a new book with that sort of feel, of course, it's going to be uh, wonderfully popular. And with such an unusual opening too. Uh, Yes, or, or an, a usual opening, but with a twist. With a twist, with a nice yes. Twist. Sort yeah. of like she's going to play act at marriage, perhaps, here? <laughs> yes. One of the other interesting things, of course, is the, the author herself. You know, the book and the author always uh, are parallel interests. Um, the author was, I mean, according to the newspaper articles, she was an actress who then uh, decided to go into writing. But if you read all the interviews, uh, she's a bit more honest and she's, she's done a bit of acting, was spending most of her time as a temp, 
as a secretary, as a PA. So she, she really was the sort of, you know, the secretary in the boss's office, quietly writing her novel in the corner when the boss was away uh, on a business trip. And she did do some acting uh, work, but... Um, the acting work was driving up, drying up. She was in her late 20s. And, you know, there's a lot of acting work apparently for, for younger women. And it sort of dies out as, uh, as, as the woman ages. And so she was, she was feeling, what can I do? I mean, I'm just temping in offices. I'm just, just going to try my hand writing a book. And she, she worked on it for four years. And then, hey, presto, straight to number one in the bestsellers. And it's won lots of, uh, lots of prizes too. Well, there we go. I mean, sort of jumping in your office. Yeah. (laughs) So nothing better to do than write a book. And as you get a little older, why not? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's inspiring for young writers. So I hope any young writers or young creative people of any kind who are listening to this realize it can be done. She was very, uh, focused. The, um, she got her inspiration from a giant doll's house she found on a trip to Amsterdam. So she was thinking, OK, who made this doll's house? And the name of the doll's house in the, in the museum in Amsterdam was Petronella Ortman's Giant Doll's House uh-huh. or something like that. She thought, OK, that's the name of my novel. <laughs> well, that's the theme of my novel. And so she, she invented this, this girl, Petronella Ortman, which is actually a real name, and wrote about how this woman had to throw herself into this doll's house into building this doll's house because of her strange, absent husband. But do we ever find out why the husband is so absent? Uh, we do, and it's full of shocking and mysterious twists and turns. But if it's in Amsterdam, I suppose I can anticipate it might be, yeah. Amsterdam's full of sex and drugs, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Even, <laughs> even, even in those days. Yes. Um, some some bad things about it, though. It is a first novel, so there are, there are... There are some howlers in it, and I must admit, there were, there were a couple of moments where I just cringed. Like, for example, she uses words like, like scrunched. Like scrunched is such a modern word. Yes. If you used it in a 1980s novel, I'd say, I'd say, no, we didn't have scrunched then. Mm. You know, in the year 2000, maybe we would, would have had the word scrunched. And there's another scene where, um, where the, the heroine says, uh, uh, she says, she's talking about someone else who's stressed out. And she says, oh, you know, she'll eat so much sweet candy that she'll grow up to be the size of a house. And this this whole thing about eating your worries and getting fat, that's such a modern concept. That's a much more modern concept, yeah. I think. I don't yeah. think you see it. Although, of course, there were plenty of, you know, ladies who sat around eating bonbons, you know, and getting fat as well. Yeah, so. but the direct the direct link between eating your worries and getting mm-hmm. fat, I think that, you know, even if some... It's 20th century. Yeah, it's yeah. very 20th century. In fact, if mm-hmm. someone had said it to me at school, I'd have thought, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. If someone said it to me now, I'd say, yes, of course, we all know that you eat your worries and you get fat. But that, that is the danger with a historical novel, isn't it? That you've got to try to stay true to the period, even in terms of the language you use and the ideas you put forward. And, and that can be quite tricky, can't it? Yes, it can be very tricky. And this is a 425-page oh <laughs> novel. So the fact that there are two or three mistakes like that in That's it. That's minor uh, then, yeah, yes. It's, uh, it's, it's fairly minor. Uh, it got great reviews uh, from everybody, but it's, um, it's not a literary novel. It's a fun novel. So um, I'm just saying this in, in case there are any literature professors 
uh, oh. listening to this because um, they might think, "Ooh, like Jane Eyre and like uh, like Charlotte Bronte." Well, I'll go and add this into my uh, into my uh, literature curriculum, uh, but it doesn't belong there. It belongs in the sort of fun uh, fun read. I, I, I don't say chiclet because that it's not quite a chiclet. It, it, it's it's not a chiclet because I, I hate the term chiclet. It, it just means it just means. I always say Jane Eyre was chiclet, so yeah. was Pride and Prejudice. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, chiclet is just a, a good book with drama and no car chases. So mm, like, lots of women. Yeah. A lot of good books don't have car chases yes. and have female characters. <laughs> so it's just it's it's a good it's a good fun read. And because it's set, uh, because it's written for today's audience, of course, uh, unlike Jane Austen, you can have a bit of bit of sex and violence in there, so you can have uh, a bit a, a bit more of the, um, the the racy stuff. Nothing. I mean, you could you could set this as a school book, so nothing too too evil. Oh, so, but, but is it true to its times? The racy bit, because the seventeenth century could be quite, you know. Yes, I mean there is a there is uh, a shocking s- scene where she discovers something about her the family she's uh, uh, gone into, which which would would have been unmentionable in those days, but now is discussed in 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 schools uh, normally. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so your modern author can can have a bit of fun with a historical novel, and indeed, if you do enjoy the novel, as many many people have, because it's uh, top of the bestseller list, um, you can of course go to Amsterdam and see Petronella's. Uh, Doll's House, which is actually there in a museum, and now I'm quite sure will become uh, a place for for literature lovers to trek to, and there'll be tours and this sort of thing. So well done, Jessie Burton, who is the uh, the uh, the author who who made it big with her first book, and the book is called The Miniaturist. The Miniaturist by Jessie Burton. So I have a quite different book here, although there are some interesting similarities too, but not exactly what you might consider. This is a new old book. It's Atlas, the Archaeology of an Imagined City by Dong Kai Cheng. And I call it a new old book because the book was actually published in Chinese originally back in the late 90s and 97, actually. And, but the English translation only appeared in 2012. And that was translated by, by Dong Kai Cheng himself, uh, alongside with Bonnie McDougall and Andres Hansen. And it, it won the Science Fiction and Fantasy, Fantasy Travel Award for translation. And it certainly fits in the category of speculative fiction. But this is a very futuristic novel. You know, it's, it's very original. It's intriguingly obsessive and it's really rather dense. So in that sense, although it's entertaining in a different kind of way, though, it's playful and satiric, although it's a little hard to say exactly what's being satirized. I would call it slippery, but also very playful and artistic. Um, but there's all of this underlying sadness or concern for the way we live, the quality of our lives, the future of our landscape, because we're in such a dense urban environment that's Hong Kong. So I'll talk about the book and also tell you a little bit about the author, because the author is very, very interesting. Um, so we're in a distant, unspecified future. And all we know is that there is this long lost city called Victoria, which is a kind of fictionalized Hong Kong. So it's a little bit like a search for Atlantis. So the novel is sort of set up like an archaeological study or a dig through old maps. That's why we have this archaeology of an imagined city as a subtitle to it. It's a kind of faux scientific study. And, And what's interesting is that the line between what's real and what's imagined shifts constantly in this narrative. No, it really helps, of course, if you do know 
Hong Kong's geography and the names of its streets and all that, uh, because sometimes streets are mentioned that don't really exist. <laughs> and so that makes it kind of fun, like a little bit of a detective novel for those of us who, who know Hong Kong. But I think the novel's really much more than just this framework, because it's sort of like an investigation of how history understands and imagines the past. Because if, if all you know in the future is that there was this city called Victoria that existed, and all you have are maps to try to reconstruct it, well, it's kind of an interesting comment on what history is like, right? As well as a commentary on the way we live now, at least that's what the novel does. Perhaps we should mention also that, that uh, Hong Kong was called Victoria. Was exactly. Age, I mean, it borrows on sort of the real, the, the real mm-hmm. history of, of the city, but it's all kind of mixed up, and the timeline is a little bit uncertain. Because, of course, if you're if you're a historian or an archaeologist trying to investigate history, you don't know for sure. You have to guess based on what little fragments and you know documentation you can find, or all maps that exist, including, like, for example. One of the maps he talks about is a tourist map of Hong Kong, <laughs> which is really quite funny. Um, one of the things I think that the novel's sort of talking about or is concerned about is the extensive overbuilding that's going on and the reclamation of our waters because um, the harbour that used to be, the Hong Kong harbours, is now kind of like this sandy desert. <laughs> and so that's what we walk over. And also what's kind of funny is the confusion of the names of the street. Well, we all know how the names of... Hong Kong streets in Chinese and English sometimes don't really match up or there's some strange, you know, sort of disjunctions and conflicts there. And and some of these are very funny, but I think um, he, he wants to talk about it uh, in terms of how it evolved under this colonial administration. So it's quite interesting that way. And it's, um, it's divided into four parts. And if you listen to the title of the four parts, you'll get a feeling for the sense of the novel. The first part is theory, the second is the city, and then streets, and finally signs. So it really begins on a rather academic note. And it can be a little bit daunting because it gets quite detailed and technical about cartography, especially in the last part. So I have to say, if you're looking for plot, and you know your traditional 19th century novel sort of, um, and, the, and the sort of drama of characters and conflict, or even, even a story in, in the usual sense, you won't find it in this book. <laughs> because the conflict is within the city itself and, and, and what human beings have done to it. So, so really, the only protagonist is the city of Hong Kong or Victoria. And the starting point is 1997 when the handover happened. And, and I'll just read you um, the, the preface of the translated edition. And, and, and Dong Kai Cheung opens it with these remarks. He says that the miracle of Hong Kong is that it has always been evolving. And he goes on to say that the founding of Hong Kong is a historical accident. Had the British not chosen to occupy the barren northern coast of the island in 1841 and set out to make it a colony, Hong Kong as we know it today would not have existed. There is no need for its present inhabitants to express gratitude for that, but we have to admit to the fact that Hong Kong was invented, and he ends by calling it a work of fiction from the very beginning. You know, some years back, I published a collection of short story about Hong Kong, which I called History's Fiction. You know, Hong Kong's identity is very difficult to place. And if you're writing from within Hong Kong, as Dong Kai Cheung does, I think it's, um, it, it, it is this question of a, a sort of fiction we can't quite 
grapple with. Um, and I think even more so now in the shifting political landscape. So I think the novel's translation is timely. So there isn't a sort of single protagonist, a main character that takes us through this? Not really. It's a bunch of like scientists. It's, it's meant to be all these studies that come together and they're like chronicled in a way. Oh, I see. So it's, a, so it's like a collection of documents and you have sort to actually, of, yeah, actually work at it. And work your way through. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Dong Kai Cheng. Um, in Hong Kong, he's actually very, very famous if you read Chinese. Um, he won the 2014 Hong Kong Trade Development Council Author of the Year. But until Atlas, very little of his work was translated into English for international distribution. Um, bits of um, this particular novel were translated, but they were one was mistra- one part was mistranslated as an essay, another was partly translated in a in an anthology, but not the whole thing. And um, he grew up here in Hong Kong, and he grew up in Sham Shui Po, and he has a great concern for community. And in in an interview that he gave, he says, "What we value more now is the value of the property rather than the quality of living." Because he grew up in sort of a dense urban neighborhood where, you know, everybody knew each other. And he, he, he describes it almost like a village, which, of course, you know, many of the districts of Hong Kong sort of were like. And uh, what he wants to do is to write as deeply as possible. Um, you know, he set up Hong Kong's first literature museum, mm-hmm. which I think is really remarkable. Because what he's after in writing is not just the superficial. And he thinks that, you know, if there's a literature museum, then you know, young people can go in and understand the importance of reading. And he, he even says, well, that a creature like myself should exist, a writer in Hong Kong. <laughs> he says, you know, it, it means that it can happen. So we just have to read, you know. Well, there's a connection between our two writers because um, um, they're both sort of struggling along in the in the artistic field. You know, it's not easy to make money. It's no, not easy it just to make a living. Yeah. So, uh, so we've got a Hong Kong author. I mean, I'm trying to make a mon- money in the Hong Kong market. It's a small market. It's a small market, especially in the literary side of it. I mean, the commercial market is small enough, but this is this is the more literary market. He teaches at various universities in Hong Kong, but he is mainly a fictionist. He's written tons of books, right. but you have to read Chinese to, to be able to read them. Um, you know, he, he even was recently featured in a documentary, you know, the filmmaker Evans Chan. And the, the, I saw this film. It's wonderful, actually. It's called The Rose of the Name, Writing Hong Kong, which is a play on, of course, Umberto Eco's novel, Name of the Rose. Um, and actually, I mentioned Eco because, you know, you could sort of imagine that would be one of his influences or his literary influences. And other clear influences are like Calvino or Borges, uh, perhaps Murakami, I'm just guessing here, you know. I have to say that Hong Kong Chinese authors, the literary authors in general, appear to be much less influenced by English language um, contemporary literature than they are by other Asian, especially like Japanese or Korean or European writers and Eastern Europeans in particular. So um, I think he he writes very much about Hong Kong. He's very concerned with the city. Um, And one of the things he writes in his preface also is that the task of literature is to make visible the invisible. And I think this this novel is trying to make the city of Hong Kong visible on a whole different level than, say, in, you know, Jackie Chan's films or the 007 movies or a book by foreign writers featuring the city like Noble House and he even references some of those. So it's a quite different thing. It's a very different kind of book. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, just to give you a feeling, here's one brief passage from part four in a chapter titled The Elevation of Imagination. From the development of elevation topography in the Hong Kong region, we can understand clearly how a place might not be willing to accept the limitations of flat surfaces, pulling away from the mediocrity that cannot permit height. He then goes on to discuss historical maps all the way back to the Jin Dynasty, 224, and where cartographers actually establish a principle of higher and lower. And then he says researchers can see that later Tang Dynasty maps showed much more contour relief, but notes that China was obviously overtaken by the West in the com- competition over height on paper and left far behind. It's a really playful remark, and there's a lot in this book that's like that. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, it's different from the usual novels published today, both in English or translation. And, you know, it's a different way of illustrating the human condition. It's much more inventive and unusual. Plus, I think you'd learn a lot, actually, when you read it about the real meaning of history. So I've just been talking about Atlas, the Archaeology of an Imagined City by Dong Kai Cheng, and you can find the English translation, which was done by Bonnie McDougall and Andres Hansen. Our classic today is Vanity Fair, a novel without a hero. So each week we talk about two recent books and then go back to a classic that we think it's worth rereading. Um, Vanity Fair, a novel without a hero, uh, is by William Makepeace Thackeray and was published in uh, 1847. So, uh, so that's a very long time ago now. Yes. Uh, and uh, but still a good read. What do you think? Oh, I think it's fabulous. It is one of my favourites out of that period. It's so entertaining. So when you were talking about your book earlier, I was thinking, yes, that's what Vanity Fair is. It's an entertaining read. It's a yeah. When you think of uh, books in that sort of Dickens era, you usually think of you know Oliver Twist or some suffering child. Um, but uh, Vanity Fair has a has a the central character is, is is a very bad girl, Becky Sharp, who's who's basically a gold digger, and her friend Emmy, who uh, who is a, who's a rather good but maybe simple character, who who does come from a rich family. So so uh, immediately it's quite a sort of modern. You've got two characters. Both powerful females, and um, with names like uh, Becky and Emmy, Emmy, it could have been written this year. It could it? very much. They feel very contemporary. Becky is the less advantaged girl, obviously, you know, and and in a way, she almost has to be a gold digger because she doesn't have a choice. She's got to find a good husband with money, you know, and um, after all, she she has to be that terrible sort of genteel poverty educated girl thing of the 19th century, a governess, you know. <laughs> That's what she's headed off to do. While Amelia or Emmy, you know, she she's fine. She's got a good family and, you know, and the teachers all like her and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. But this being Victorian fiction, of course, there are twists and turns. Ah, so, absolutely. So Becky decides, he, she sets her cap at, uh, at, at Emmy's brother, mm. who does have money uh, like Emmy, and uh, but she fails with him, and really uh, the, the the book is structured uh, uh, quite like a soap opera. It was uh, published in uh, sort of twenty parts in magazines, so it does have that soap opera feel. As Becky tries to to marry Emmy's brother, and then that fails, and in and then he looks at she looks at other routes to 
to to riches. Although she never quite gave up on him entirely. There's a little bit of the sentimentalist in her in the end. You know, Becky Sharp is, you know, is one of my favorite female figures because she's just kind of like bad, you know. <laughs> you know, and she's unapologetic about it and, you know, she can play men because she's very beautiful. That's one of the things we know about her. Um but, you know, the, the book also has – it's kind of sloppily written, partly because it was written serially. And I think people have complained that, you know, he, he gets characters' names wrong and, you know, some of the, the continuity, as we call it, doesn't quite work. Um, plus, he's a terribly intrusive narrator. Yes, he, he keeps poking himself in. And, yeah, it's like he – you know, this is exactly – in creative writing classes, we always tell our fiction students, you, you, you don't want to be so intrusive. You know, you back off and let the characters do it. But I can't imagine Vanity Fair without that voice, can you? Right, right. And we should say a few words about Thackeray himself. Thackeray was, was born in, in India and was one of the people who, uh, who popularised curry in the, in the UK. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so you can thank him for your chicken tikka masala. Um, <laughs> he was born in Calcutta and he was sent at the age of like three or four or, or some, uh, barely a toddler to India, to England, to boarding school. And on the way there, he passed an island where Napoleon was locked up. And that becomes part of the Vanity Fair uh, a story, but uh, he was he was actually a bit like uh, uh, Jesse Burton in that he was trying to make it in the arts. Uh, his fa- he came from a good family, but they lost all their money. He had a bit of money, and he lost all that gambling and 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 dissolute living. And um, eventually, his uh, his wife became pregnant, and she realised he had to make some money somehow. And so um, he really was a struggling artist uh, for many years, and then finally made it big with this uh, with this serialised uh, novel in a magazine. Yeah, you have to give him something for that. I mean, you know, because it, it's funny about Thackeray because you can never quite tell throughout the novel what his actual attitude is. I mean, he he you know clearly he's satirising the human relations and the way, especially you know between men and women and about marriage as well, and also. I think some of the religious sort of satire that's going. He, he's he apparently wasn't a very um, religious man. I think you yeah, know, he, was, he, he was naughty, and the, you know he, he's he's happy to let the bad girl win, win sometimes, in a way, and, the, yeah. and the good girl lose. <laughs> yes, and and uh, there's one theory that the curry killed him because um, he had oh, a dear. he had a meal of red hot chilies, and uh, you know was found dead in bed from a stroke the next day. <laughs> Um, but I think one of the things he does sort of um, uh, point out in, in, in the novel or, or show or kind of demonstrates in the novel is that, you know, um, it is tough. Um, you know, the difference in the class structure of, of England does come across in there, you know. Because Becky, I mean, uh, uh, you know, she, she's this mercenary, hard-nosed woman and she spends her life amassing money and lovers, you know. And she's really a kind of anti-heroine, not a heroine, right? And all she does, but she is bent on survival. And I think that that's something that is, you know, in a sense, he, he had some empathy for that. He seemed to understand that, possibly because he had to work pretty hard to survive himself. Right, right. And, uh, you know, we started this series talking about Dickens as our classic. Mm, that's and right. This is kind of the anti-Dickens in a way. Totally, in yes. The, they're both on tour at the same time, but this is the hard edge. This is the Rolling Stones to the people. Yes, that's right. And I, I think also he doesn't take himself as seriously as Dickens. But, you know, he does have some sympathy, I think, for Becky. Um, you know, in Chapter 31, you know, she, she sees Joseph Sedley again. And one thing she says to him 
is I can't stay still in any place but wander about always restless and unhappy. All my friends have been false to me. All. There is no such thing as an honest man in the world. Oh, <laughs> oh so poor thing, yeah. Yeah, so a bit of melodrama. A bit, yeah. Vanity Fair by uh, William Thackeray. Good read. Absolutely. And well worth reviving. That's all the time we have today. Join us next week on Read All About It. 